Above all, witness trees were there, standing in significant places at key moments in American history, linking past and present and shaping our understanding of both. But what happens when witness trees fall? A unique partnership between the Rhode Island School of Design and the National Park Service lets their stories live on. I'm Todd Christopher, and this is The Secret Lives of Parks. There is no shortage of superlatives in the national park system. Crater Lake is the deepest lake in the United States. Denali is the highest peak and Death Valley the lowest point in all of North America. General Sherman in Sequoia and Kings Canyon is the largest tree in the world. As inspiring as these may be, some of the records are more sobering. Antietam National Battlefield in Maryland preserves the story of what is still the bloodiest single day in American history, September 17, 1862, and a turning point in the Civil War. With its rolling hills and arched stone bridges on a tree-lined stream, it's such a tranquil pastoral setting that it almost belies the unimaginable violence and sorrow of that day. And on that landscape stands what may be the last living link to the battle, a sycamore tree that bore silent witness to one of the darkest days in our history. I've come to Antietam to see it for myself, and I'm walking down a gravel road leading to one of those stone bridges, in the footsteps of so many Union soldiers on that fateful day, with the person who knows that tree better than anyone. My name is uh, Joe Calzaret. I'm the Parks Natural Resources Program Manager, and basically my job is, with the rest of our staff and resources, is to take care of all the natural elements on the park. And those resources include this incredible specimen that you're about to tell me about. Yeah, Burnside Sycamore is what we know it as. It's the only witness tree on the battlefield that's in a photograph. Uh, we do believe we have other witness trees. Um, we know that by the size and diameter of the trees. We don't bore the trees uh, to get a core sample. We don't do that because we don't want to wound the tree. It's a little bit harder process to do. We don't want to take that chance. This tree, however, shows up in a photograph, and we'll go over and show you that photograph, and it was taken by Alexander Gardner. Gardner didn't set out to photograph the tree. A protege of the Civil War photographer Matthew Brady, he is best remembered for his portraits of President Abraham Lincoln and for documenting the horrifying aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. Arriving just two days after the fighting, Gardner took dozens of stark and unflinching photographs of the battlefield before the dead had been buried, something Americans had never seen before, and captured the image of the tree in the process. This bridge that we're about to walk across prior to the battle was known as the Lower Bridge or Roarbacks Bridge. After the battle, it became known as Burnside's Bridge, named after General Ambrose Everett Burnside. It was his Ninth Corps, or elements of it, that charged across this bridge from the uh, east to the west. So he was coming this way towards us, up this hill, and he faced Toombs' Georgia Brigades. 
Uh, so ever since then, this bridge has been known as Burnside's Bridge. We cross the bridge and stand in the shade of a sycamore tree rising from a tight little wedge of the stream bank, nestled between Burnside Bridge and Teetum Creek and a fence line. An interpretive display features the gardener photo, and it's unmistakable that this is the same tree. Where you're standing right here, I mean, literally, the Confederates were in those pits ahead of you across the creek, and the Union soldiers were right behind this wall where we were. So, I mean, it was literally on the crossfire. And then wave after wave of Union regiments, the 51st and 51st New York and 51st Pennsylvania, finally took the bridge. But... That was the final assault that went across the bridge that swept the Confederates back. And of course, they, you know, they were moving towards the town of Sharpsburg and the battle unfolded. At the end of the day, the Union Army kind of wound up in the hills above where the bridge is and the, the battle ended in a stalemate. While the battle wasn't decisive, it did put an end to the Confederates' push to the north. The Union declared Antietam a narrow victory and five days later, President Abraham Lincoln issued his initial Emancipation Proclamation, altering the course of the war. But the cost on both sides was enormous. Some 23,000 men were killed or wounded over the 12 hours of fighting that culminated at the Burnside Bridge. And the sycamore tree, which Calzaret estimates was perhaps 15 or 20 years old at the time, was present for all of it. So it witnessed the battle action, some of the heaviest, bloodiest action that took place down here by the bridge. That tree was there, and probably inside of it, and there may be some, some bullets, perhaps. Um, but people really enjoy this tree because, from a human standpoint, people like to relate to something that was alive. You know, the bridge is an inanimate object, Dunker Church is an inanimate object, the bloody lane's a road. But this tree is alive, and it was alive, and people can like to stand next to it and say, wow, this is something that was actually here. Um, it's not going to be with us all the time. Like live things, things die. Hopefully that won't be any time soon. At first glance, the Burnside looks to me like, well, a regular sycamore, happily thriving near the waterside like the countless others I've seen before. It seems healthy enough, with robust foliage that overhangs the bridge and at least some of the patchy, whitish bark that's characteristic of the species. But sycamores can live 500 years or more and reach heights of nearly 100 feet, and this one is decidedly not as lofty. The tree's a little stunted. It's, it's really, for its age, should be, could be a little bit bigger. In fact, if you go up and down Antietam Creek, you're going to see larger sycamore trees that are actually about the same age or even, you know, or even a little younger that are bigger. Um, the, the first thing you'll notice about the tree is the trunk. When the trunk of the tree goes into the ground, most trees kind of fan out at the base, you know. This one here goes straight in, uh, almost like a telephone pole. Well, that's a sign that, that the roots are girdled. Roots of a tree should go down into the ground deep and expand out. Mm -hmm. These grow around in a circle. There's good reason for that. Growing so close to the bridge and hugging the bank of Antietam Creek, the tree really has nowhere else for its roots to go. 
So that's one challenge that we have with this tree. Can't do anything about that. The other challenge that we were having is uh, soil compaction. Everybody wanted to walk up before this fence was here to keep people from doing so up to the base of the tree. Why? It's, I mean, look, take a picture of me next to the tree, you know, it looks good, I want to touch it. But the problem with that is with soil compaction, it creates a hard surface that water and nutrients can't get down in the soil to the roots. That's a problem. Luckily, the tree's situation is manageable. Park staff have stabilized the nearby stream bank to prevent erosion, cabled some of the tree's massive limbs, and erected a split rail fence that allows visitors to get close, but not too close. And though its roots may be girdled, the rest of the tree is in pretty good health. The tree above the ground, Todd, is, is in great shape. Um, come with me just a little bit. Sure. You look at the joint there, it's very typical of sycamores to, to, to grow and then kind of branch off. Mm -hmm. It has what we call a U joint. That's a good joint. A V joint would be bad because water would get down to the crack, wintertime expand and contract, and could split. That's a good strong joint. Still, Calzaret is prepared for the inevitable, and the story of how he's prepared really floors me. He recounts working with famous and historic trees, a program of the conservation group American Forests that, for a time, collected seeds from significant trees across the country back in the 1990s. One of my jobs was to go up on a cherry picker, and I'm afraid of heights, so I didn't do so well, and pick seeds. And I picked about a half of a five-gallon bucket, sent them to famous and historic trees, and they propagated the seeds. So if you wanted to have a Burnside sycamore in your backyard, you buy this little you know, container that had the tree in it, and you would grow the tree. Part of the deal was is that when I needed seeds back, that we would get them. So on this battlefield, I have three... Burnside sycamore trees, we had six, three died, we have three left. And uh, to hopefully, if anything ever happened to this tree, we could replace it with the same genotype from this tree. That's amazing. Of course, famous and historic trees isn't around anymore, yeah. so I gotta make sure nothing happens to these other three trees. It's like a historic seed bank. Exactly. Wow. The tree really, in its lifespan, Todd, if you look at the years, like I said, the tree can live up to 500, 600 years. It'd be like a young adult. It could live for hundreds of years. Unfortunately, probably because of some of the challenge that we're talking about, it won't. But we're hoping that, you know, as, you know, as stewards in here in the park and what we do, that we're going to keep this tree to the longest lifespan that it could be. Could be here another hundred years, I hope. Mm -hmm. But with nature, you know, with wind and, and lightning, hey, you never know. So just enjoy the tree when it's here. And uh, like I said, if it could tell stories, it would have some stories to tell for sure. The Burnside Sycamore is a stellar example, but it's just one of many witness trees to be found across the park system. From battlefields like Antietam and Gettysburg, to the homes of presidents and historic figures. But what happens when those trees eventually do fall, and to the stories they would tell if they could? At the Rhode Island School of Design, or RISD, Dale Broholm and Daniel Kaviki tackle those questions with their students, and the results are extraordinary. 
In 2009, Broholm, a longtime furniture maker and instructor, and Kaviki, a history professor and administrator, founded the Witness Tree Project, a unique partnership between RISD and the National Park Service where fallen witness trees receive new life through the artwork and relevant objects that student artists create from their wood. Part seminar, part studio, the Witness Tree Project has focused on a dozen sites since its inception, with each year's project culminating in the creation and display of student works informed by their study and interpretation of the history of each site. It's a remarkable way to complete the circle. The seed of the idea was planted 15 years ago when Broholm traveled to Gettysburg with friends, including a Park Service historian, and learned of the agency's efforts to identify witness trees. He was intrigued and, as an artisan, also curious to know what happened to the wood when the trees fell. So the wheels started uh, turning, and um, I asked if there'd be any interest in potentially trying to work something out where we could get some of these witness trees, obtain some of these witness trees, and uh, do something without school. Um, and just things started to roll from there. That's Dale Broholm. Back at RISD, he and Kaviki had the support of their departments and got to work. So then we started the, uh, the conversation of what could this mean? What could we do with this? The idea of taking these trees and making it something more significant than just a, a, a studio class where Objects are made from this wood, but that's all. And from my perspective, it was quite interesting because, um, you know, teaching history at an art and design school is is a bit of a challenge. The students are there to be in the studio and to uh, to really engage in their making. And that's Dan Kabiki. And, um, you know, I'm a pretty good lecturer, I think. And uh, I had... Uh, been doing my utmost, uh, you know, in the in a more conventional setting of a, of a history uh, class, but this provided me a, a new opportunity to teach history, to to think about history in a in a new way, and to really uh, marry the kinds of work that the, that the students were familiar with in terms of studio design uh, with uh, liberal arts and to really find ways to connect those those two realms at, a, at a, a deeper level than they were connected ordinarily. The objects themselves truly demonstrate the depth of that connection. Describing them here really wouldn't do them justice, so I will simply encourage you to view the gallery of work the student artists created for each site, everything from functional tools to finely crafted specimen boxes. Please see the show notes for this episode for links. Again, here's Dan Kaviki. I mean, there's a whole um, uh, way in which the Witness Tree Project flips the usual practice of history on its head. Usually historians are looking at old objects and reading history from those objects. In the Witness Tree Project, we are making objects from this historic wood and writing history into those uh, objects. So it's it's a... It, in, and between seminar and studio, we go back and forth between those two things. You know, we're, we're looking at traditional evidence for historical events and trends, but at the same time, the students in the studio are 
thinking about, well, how do I represent meaning um, in objects that, that I myself am creating? And Dale Broholm. Their, their interpretations are always very interesting and engaging and not necessarily what we would expect out of them. So we found at different sites over the years that the students dig into certain topics and express those through their objects in, in, in a way or in, in, um, with a substance that maybe the uh, interpretive staff or the curatorial staff at the site aren't thinking about, aren't, aren't investigating necessarily. And it, it gives the opportunity for a new conversation to be held both within uh, our group, our, our class, but also in a greater audience at the site. And, you know, it's just, it's really interesting to see what the students could do, but because they're, they're nothing, nothing but clever. And they're, they're very engaged. They're digging into what they're doing with Dan. And it gives them, for the studio side and for their own design practice, uh, another tool to then use when they go out into their professional practice. So it was an image uh, that I carved uh, in the woodshop uh, of a tree and in it I had etched, um, resources are not infinite. That's Esther Akintoye, a recent graduate and Master of Design candidate in interior architecture at RISD. She participated in this year's project, which focused on Marsh Billings Rockefeller National Historical Site in Woodstock, Vermont, where the student works were on display through October. She's describing the object she created, which, like those of her classmates, including snowshoes, paddles, and instruments, explored the site's ecology and history of conservation that traces back to the Abenaki people. I was thinking about the readings that we did. There was one reading that really struck out with me, which was, and I can't remember the exact title of it, but it was talking about the kind of like the I say it with quotes, a transference of land, which really was like the forceful taking of the land uh, by the uh, colonizers that came from Europe um, during that time. Um, And I thought about how the, through our readings, just understanding how the Abenaki tribe tended for the land um, they saw the land completely different the way European settlers saw the land. So I was interested in themes of ownership and kind of like uh, how, you know, the resources that we have as well are, are not infinite. The fresh perspectives of student artists are vital to a process that can help to further the interpretation of a site's history. In its first year, the Witness Tree Project focused on Hampton National Historic Site in Maryland a site that recently has been reckoning with the untold stories of the hundreds of people once enslaved there. Here's Dale Broholm. The first one with Hampton was really interesting in that um, it was was basically a house museum, and the interpretive staff was talking about the wealth of the family, uh, the size of the house, how important it was, and they were starting to transition to the other stories along with those stories. And those other stories were the people behind the building of the house, the indentured servants. It was a slave plantation. But up until 
that time, they really weren't addressing it. And so then the students just through their course of studies with them and the seminar started to dig into this and they really wanted to engage. They wanted to tell those stories. So their objects represented some of that. And when the pieces went back to Hampton for exhibition, the response we had from the um, interpretive staff after the exhibition was they were so pleased because it allowed these conversations to start and it was a direction they're moving anyhow. So it was really beneficial for them. The Witness Tree Project is so moving and effective because it is not a revision, but instead an extension of the history of a place, honoring the past and bridging the future in the timeless way that only art and imagination can. Every year of the project, each in its own way, has been a success, but both Broholm and Kaviki point to one installment where everything just seemed to come together, where true partnership between student, teacher, and park staff alike elevated the experience for everyone. Again, Dale Broholm. We did a class with um, at the Martin Van Buren site in, in Kinderhook. And um, everybody we've dealt with at the Park Service, from, from my perspective, has been great. Um, you know, they're, they're overworked, probably underpaid, and they have a full plate and they make time for us, which is really quite nice. Some of the, some of the sites, the, the staff, the personnel get it more than other ones. And Martin Van Buren was, those, those folks were just incredible. Um, they, they welcomed us in, they had us there. And when we had the exhibition, they integrated all the objects into the house and that they weren't just centralized for exhibition. They were placed throughout the house in appropriate places that the conversation would be between the new object, the old object, and then the viewership. And it was, it was wonderful. And one more time, here's Dan Kaviki. Yeah, for me, it really en encapsulated the whole project and, and what we were trying to do uh, in, in terms of, of history and creating conversation uh, around history. So, you know, how does the past exist and how is it sustained in objects? And that's really what, what that exhibition, you know, uh, just put front and center. So you had old objects and new objects, both telling stories in slightly different ways and they would resonate with each other. And, and you at, at times you wouldn't quite know if the object was actually new or old, uh, but it would, every object forced you to think in that exhibit. And it, it almost uh, it kind of, um, uh, it, it, made it, it made the whole uh, Van Buren estate seem like a new place. The Secret Lives of Parks is a production of the National Parks Conservation Association. Episode 13, The Giving Trees, was produced by Todd Christopher, and our small but mighty team includes Jennifer Eric, Bev Stanton, and Vanessa Pius. More at thesecretlivesofparks.org. Original theme music by Chad Fisher. Learn more about the Witness Tree Project and view galleries of the objects created by student artists at witnesstreeproject.org. Do you know of a story we should tell? 
Email your suggestions to stories at npca.org and... Hey, you never know. We just might feature it here. For more than a century, the National Parks Conservation Association has been protecting and enhancing America's national parks for present and future generations. With more than 1.6 million members and supporters, NPCA is the nation's only independent, nonpartisan advocacy organization dedicated to protecting national parks. Learn more and join us at npca.org.